Bums on Seats on Cambridge 105 Radio. Ladies and gentlemen, just a word of warning. Mess, aren't you? I'm not very tall either. Everyone in this room is now dumber for having listened to it. You're listening to Cambridge 105 across the city and South Cambridgeshire, and now it's time for Bums on Seats, your fortnightly, your fortnightly roundup of the latest cinematic delights and disasters. Joining me to review this week are Emma Marchant. Hello. Bridget Bradshaw. Hello. Lorcan O'Neill. Hello. And Victoria Eyre. Hello. We've got an ele- eclectic selection of films to discuss this week. Uh, we'll be heading into the Colombian jungle for the award-winning drama Monos. We'll be into the home of a working-class Geordie family in Ken Loach's latest socialist-used drama Sorry We Missed You, and then back in time with two very different Netflix releases. To the 70s with Eddie Murphy starring Rudy Ray Moore biopic Dolomite Is My Name, and then to the 15th century with the Shakespeare-indebted period drama The King starring Timothy Chalamet. But before all this, we're making a return visit to the Overlook Hotel. Hi. You can hear me. You're magic. Like me. I don't know about magic. I always called it The Shining. The world is a hungry place. A dangerous place. These people, they hurt people like us. These are the devils. They'll eat watch hands. And they've noticed that little girl. Wow. Hi there. Get out of my head! Get out! From acclaimed director Mike Flanagan, best known as the creator of Netflix's Haunting of Hill House, Doctor Sleep is a bold attempt to adapt a novel deemed one of Stephen King's most unfilmable. Set in the present day, Ewan McGregor stars as a grown-up Dan Torrance, who is still struggling with a trauma of what happened to him in the Overlook Hotel as a child. He now rarely uses his power to shine, but this all changes after he's communicated with by Abra, played by newcomer Kylie Curran. She is being hunted by a group known as the True Knot, led by Rebecca Ferguson, who feed off people who have a power to shine so they can maintain immortality. Dan has managed to stay off the grid in recent years, but to save Abra, he has to get his shine back on. So, Emma, you're the only person of the reviewers today who has actually read um, the novel Doctor Sleep. And uh, the film is in that sort of awkward position between trying to be a sequel to The Shining, a film that Stephen King famously hates, and a sequel to the novel of The Shining. Do you think it works well as doing both? Uh yeah, I think it did actually. It's interesting. It's interesting we say that because obviously Stephen King, for the I guess, has, has managed to get over his famous massive dislike for The Shining because this is a very clear sequel going on in 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 the book. Well, at the end of The Shining, the book, the Overlook Hotel burns to the ground, which Kubrick did not then do in the film. So obviously, there's no chance in Doctor Sleep itself, the book to go back to the hotel. So that was quite interesting. But I think it stays very true to the spirit of Dr. Sleep the Book, which is less of a straightforward horror and more of a kind of supernatural ghost story. And also, of course, it's a story of a alcoholic struggling with his own demons. And I felt 
as a film. It's a long film. Again, it feels like all these King adaptations at the moment are really long. It Chapter 2 was like two and a half hours. And again, it's nearly two and a half hours. But it didn't drag for me. And I can barely believe I'm saying this, but I think a lot of that for me is to do with Ewan McGregor's performance. I'm not a massive Ewan McGregor fan outside of train spotting, but I think he did a really good job with Grown Up Danny, and I think he gave a compassionate and sympathetic performance, ably backed up by newcomer um, Kylie. What's the surname of the girl who plays Abra? Uh, Karam. Kylie Karam. She was. I, I thought she was excellent. I haven't seen her anything. And obviously Rebecca Ferguson as the as the head of the baddies. What amused me was the other baddies really get very very little to say. It is all Rebecca Ferguson. The rest of the true not gang were not terribly sinister because they were almost silent. Yeah. Um. Before I do my next question, um, Rebecca Ferguson is doing an Irish accent, so I do have to just jump into Larkin to give his uh, review of her Irish accent before we go any further. I thought it was fine. I, I thumbs up. Little, I mean. <laughs> The Irish accent is so wacky. It's it's genuinely quite hard to tell when someone's doing a bad job of it. Okay. What 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 has like stood out to you in the past as a really bad example of it though? Just oh, as a sort God. of barometer. I couldn't even begin to <laughs> assume. Uh, I'm gonna have to pass on that one. Oh, I, I, I cannot. Playing the devil's right advocate now. again. Maybe that's because there are no bad ones because it's so easy to do. Yeah, <laughs> oh, you haven't heard mine. <laughs> uh, but we'll save that for the pub afterwards. Uh, Bridget, um, one of the things that really surprised me about Doctor Sleep is the fact that it wasn't like this sort of nostalgic cash in that I was expecting. I was expecting it to be something like that. Uh, that sequence in Ready Player One where they go into the Shining video game and it's just ticking all the boxes. But there's nothing like that. It's a really strange film. Did you have a similar experience? Did you feel that it stands on its own two feet separate to The Shining? Um, yeah, I rewatched The Shining immediately before I watched Doctor Sleep, just like an hour between them, and it really struck me what a modern horror Doctor Sleep is. It's, it's shot quite differently, it sounds quite different, the soundtrack's much more sort of thumping and, and in your face. There's a lot more close, close faces. Um, and unlike The Shining, you get the supernatural, as as Emma said, it's, it's straight there from the beginning. It's not, there's a hint that there might be some supernatural goings on, and then instead we'll just have a psychological drama about, is everyone just going mad in this isolated hotel? Is the boy crazy, or does he just need a bit of looking after? Um, so from a horror perspective, it was much more of a, felt a lot more contemporary. Um, Larkin, so this is directed by Mike Flanagan. Um, this is his second Stephen King adaptation because he made Gerald's Game for yeah. Netflix. Um, I was just wondering, you know, whether you think that this is a good film from him, what your thoughts on his previous films are? Flanagan's interesting. He certainly has his own style. He likes this kind of soft focus green filter that I think generally quite works quite well for him. But uh, in terms of his body of work, I'm pretty. It's uh, for me, it's pretty hit and miss. I couldn't even get past the first episode of House on Haunted Hill. Um, I thought Gerald's Game should be in the top five all-time Stephen King adaptations until the last five minutes completely obliterates everything that film. It is the towards. most nonsensical ending. Bizarre. Uh. <laughs> so it's like, how can you be so interesting and kind of contemporary and have see seem like you have this fresh take on contemporary horror? and then just fall into these very obvious traps. Uh, and Doctor Sleep, again, the whole film is kind of hidden and miss for me, I think. Um, well, firstly, in a way I'm surprised it's taken... In a way I'm surprised it's taken this long for the nostalgia train to hit Kubrick Town. Uh, but in the same way, I'm also shocked that it ever did. I think this is, like, uh, a nice experiment, but, I mean... 
I think it's fairly safe to say that Kubrick, for a lot of people, is the closest thing you get to kind of like a semi-deity in film, like someone who just feels like he was born to make film. And so touching his stuff and trying to recreate scenes with horrifically recast actors um, is just, again, such an obvious trap. So you tell me that wasn't really Jack Nicholson? That was not really <laughs> oh, Jack wow. Nicholson. Okay. I think everyone on planet Earth is probably a better Jack Nicholson <laughs> than the guy they actually got. And poor Wendy. And she goes through so much in The Shining and we see her and her, her Danny has been traumatised and Wendy in Doctor Sleep looks like she's been at a health farm yeah. and had a lobotomy and lots of plastic surgery. It's a much more nuanced... I mean, I rewatched The Shining as well and The Shining is, I would say, a much scarier film than Doctor Sleep. I did not find Doctor Sleep particularly scary. There is... I, I found one scene incredibly difficult to watch... Um, you know, because obviously they, the, the, the true not gang are murdering children. There is, and that was the worst scene for me in the book, and also, and, and, they, and they did it well in the film. In a, tr it was, it was truly horrible, really. But um, it's not that scary. But I was going to say, rewatching The Shining, I was reminded all over again how, as a massive fan of the original book, The Shining, I can understand why Stephen King didn't like it because although stylistically it is brilliant, The Shining, Jack Nicholson is. Insane from the get-go in that film. He is unpleasant and insane from the get-go. And in the book, it's not, that's not, you know, you, you see the hotel insidiously changing him. Whereas actually, he seems insane before he even enters the Overlook, let alone when the ghosts get to him. So I think it's, yeah, this is a much more nuanced and human film. The whole thing about The Shining is it, it's it's so chilly, it's so removed, it, it's 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 all about the look of it, those massive block colours. And Shelley Duvall famously says she had just a miserable time on set anyway, and that comes through a million times in her performance. So I didn't mind the woman they recast as Shelley Duvall. You're right, though, the, the Jack Nicholson lookalike was I've, I, I have questionable. Heard, <laughs> I have heard this complaint about The Shining before, where like there's not a lot of progression for Jack Nicholson's character, uh, Jack Dorrance. Um, but I think when you when you kind of consider the character in the film is like he's a recovering alcoholic who kind of doesn't really like his family and is just kind of always on edge. He's he's basically as the film begins, he's basically a breaking point and it doesn't take very much. But then by the end of the film, he's so much even more over the top and it's quite enjoyable to watch. Whereas Ewan McGregor here, he's his character's weirdly not in a lot of it, especially in the first half, and he's very very passive. And then all of a sudden in the second half. He becomes a very active character. But the motivations and everything, how he gets to the kind of final scenes of the movie just felt very rushed and out of nowhere and completely lacking con well, too much contrast of where he was at the start of the film. I think to, to have the whole kind of additional scene, like we were saying, to make it a sequel to the film rather than the book, they have that whole um, finale at the Overlook Hotel, which isn't in the book. So the book ends at a previous part in the film, if you like. So it is. it feels a little bit more spread out. This is much more streamlined. And I think you're right. I was also terribly sad. I thought Zay McLaren, who plays Crow Daddy, like second in command of the True Knot, was horribly wasted as well. He like was a, great. He gets one scene to shine and that's about it. But yeah. he could, they, he could have, there could have been more. Like I said, I just felt that Rose Ferguson, who does, sorry, Rose Ferguson, Rose the Hat, Rebecca Ferguson, does a really good job, but the rest of the gang were like the least threatening gang of pseudo vampires I've ever, I've ever found. Also, Larkin, uh, before I move on i just need to point out gets his one scene to shine as you just said uh, did, I, I, yeah. did i make a, a you, you made you okay. made a pun and nobody remarked on it okay um, i appreciate that someone's looking out for yeah those. <laughs> well that's what i'm here i'm sort of the pun monitor as well as the host yeah um, that device next in many ways do we feel like dr sleep is sort of an inverse of the cinematic adaptation of the shining where jack nicholson as i say before any of the supernatural elements come clear he's clearly out of his mind whereas here the supernatural elements are at play 
from the start, but Ewan McGregor's a far more sort of nuanced performance. Do we feel that it's sort of a deliberate inverse there? Yeah, I mean, psychologically, um, The Shining is all about um, Jack's cruelty and his hard feelings towards everybody. But the Doctor Sleep, I think the heart of it all is about, you said at the beginning, Emma, about compassion and it is about people having hope and trust and being willing to reach out well, we didn't even mention the reason it's called Dr. Sleep is because that's the name they give to Danny. He ends up working in a hospice. And actually, I found some of those scenes incredibly touching at the beginning. So he ends up working in a hospice where he's learned to re-embrace his shining and he can use it to help people who are dying in the hospice on their final journey. So if these people are scared, he can use his telepathic abilities to, to, to soothe them in those final moments. And that's a rather lovely idea, actually, and that, you know, that he's come from such a place of chaos and horror, this child, to grow into this man who is helping people. It's, it, that, that's a nice idea in a novel, and I think they did it a good job in the film. And then they drop it entirely. <laughs> no, this is, yeah, this is so true as well, and then it's like it never happened. Look, it had its moment to shine. Okay. <laughs> Um, one final question. Are there any other Stanley Kubrick films where they could make many sequels decades later? Eyes Wide Shut. <laughs> I am curious, would that marriage still be together? <laughs> I'd love to see Tom Cruise and Nicole Goodkin do a rerun of Eyes Wide Shut. I would pay good money for that. Are you deliberately forgetting 2001, 2010, oh, well, 2020, yeah. 23, 41? Yeah. 61. Oh, <laughs> ah, 2061. See, that's how memorable it is. Yeah, I completely forgot about those. To be yeah, it's well. uh, a further space odyssey that nobody really wanted to take. Um, but yeah, no, that was Doctor Sleep. I think it's a all-round thumbs up. I'd say. Yeah. Yeah. For me, Stephen King, huge nerd, fan, fan, fan nerd. Uh, yeah, huge thumbs it's up. It's not. For me. It's not boring. It's very yeah. watchable. It's yeah, just for, questionable. For yeah, it is em- it's eminently it watchable. By. That's yeah. for sure. And you know, I recently went to go and see Joker, and my husband sat for an hour and a half through that. So just saying. Well, I can understand, because Joker, not good. Doctor Sleep, I'd say it's good. Um, But yeah, it's now showing at the Light Cinema and the View Cinema, so Certificate 15. Bums on Seats on Cambridge 105 Radio. So the next film today is Dolomite Is My Name. From screenwriters Scott Alexander and Larry Karaszewski, best known for writing Ed Wood, comes another feel-good story of another misunderstood movie personality. Eddie Murphy stars as Rudy Ray Moore, a struggling entertainer whose act generates more groans than laughs. But one day, inspiration strikes and he brings the character of Dolomite, a foul-mouthed pimp, to the stage and immediately becomes an overnight comedy success. Director Craig Brewer's film tracks his career from being a cult comedian to a big-screen icon, with all the -the behind-the-scenes drama that greeted Rudy along the way. Here's the trailer. All my life, people have been telling me no. Rudy. Sometimes our dreams just don't come true. A man slam a door in my face, I just find another door. I want the world to know I exist. The actors we hire, you're a bit doughier than them. Doughier? In storytelling, it's always best to write what you know. Ain't nothing to talk about my personal life. I deal with the nightlife, club owners and mobsters and lots of pimps and kung fu. Like he could be a sex machine. What planet is this cat on? This thing flops, you're gonna be working for free for the rest of your life. I'm so grateful for what you did for me. Cause I never seen nobody that looks like me up there on that big screen. God damn, Dolomite. Great card in heaven, you know. So I feel like before, you know, 
don't want to spoil the review, but I feel like we're all big thumbs up on this film. And Locke and you in particular have said that this is one of your favourite films of the year, and it sort of reminded you of uh, Bowfinger, which is a previous Eddie Murphy film. Do you want to yeah, sort of elaborate on absolutely. that? Absolutely. Like, I don't know if you guys are aware of this movie called Bowfinger, but it's the greatest comedy ever made. Um, <laughs> and this this is very much like a spiritual sibling to it, not just because Eddie Murphy's in one of the lead roles. Um, personally, I've been a fan of Rudy Moore for a long time. As a teenager, I was introduced to like the Human Tornado and uh, Disco Godfather and stuff like that. Um, and I was lucky lucky enough to catch this at uh, the New Beverly Cinema in Los Angeles, Tarantino's one. And they'd made they'd made up a brand new thirty five mil print just for that cinema to screen, and the crowd was like. The crowd was like so engaged, and they're all like big Rudy Ray Moore fans. Apparently, Rudy Ray Moore had been there before, and just like apparently, up until the day he died, he was just like such a wild character, and just tried to amuse as many people as he could. Um, and I think this film, anyone who's like, not specifically this, but anyone who's worked on like on like a film set or tried to helm a film, I think is it's immediately engaging and endearing, and just I just laughed the whole way through. All the performances are laser precise, um, and I can't recommend it enough, really. Yeah, so uh, Victoria, you said you know you're not a big Eddie Murphy fan. Mm. You don't really know the background to this true story. I was just wondering how it played for you without that context. So when I like uh, put it on, I was thinking, okay, this might be a bit hard for me to watch. Uh, might might be one of those Netflix films that I drift off from. But as soon as it came on, it's just this like complete like great character that he brings across and then it starts off just so pleasant like he's working in a record store and then just to see him like achieve what he wants throughout the film makes it like so like enjoyable and heartwarming but all the way throughout it he doesn't become so I don't know the Rudy Raymore story that well but he doesn't seem like he got big-headed he seems like he's quite down to earth and just seeing his connection with all the people that Eddie Murphy brings across in the film with so many of the characters especially Lady Reed like I loved seeing these like friendships develop and I really enjoyed it yeah, no, and it's definitely a feel-good movie. Like, mm. I, you know, I dare anybody to watch this and not come away with a big smile on their face. Um, Bridget, how did you feel? Uh, yeah, I didn't know it was a true story, so that was a nice surprise for me at the end. Um, I, I work on film sets, and it was lovely to see them all trying to do things and do it so badly. Um, <laughs> and a female sound recordist, which you very, 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 very rarely see on screen usually they go we're at but like a bloke in because otherwise they won't realize that's what they are um but no it's, it's ever so funny i love the, the 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 what you can do with the support of your community and um sometimes eddie murphy's got a, a reputation for being a bit bad mouth and i was going to say but this film's not like that except of course it is because dolomite is incredibly filthy mouth and um it, it's yeah, it's weird because it's very foul mouth and yet it's very wholesome <laughs> I think the, the the way he manages to swap over between the stage persona of Dolomite and because we've met his Rudy Ray Moore character before then, that really lets us bed into Rudy's a nice person and he's not the... He, he, he doesn't... Um, I did wonder, though, at what point the real Dolomite was going to come and... Well, yeah, that is a thing that it does set up, is the fact that this character is essentially stolen from somebody else, and that's something that it references. I'm sure Rudy Raymar is the sort of person who wouldn't hide that and was always up front with that, but it establishes this, and then it never picks up again. I was wondering if that was jarring to anybody i didn't find i didn't find that too much of a problem at all for me because the film for me really really took flight when they start making the film with it i mean and again we um Lorcan just said how the 
supporting performances are so pitch perfect. Keegan Michael Key is the kind of this guy who's tried to write this socially responsible script or whatever and has tried really hard and they're just like riding roughshod all over it. But I don't think I haven't seen Bowfinger. I'm obviously rushing off to see it immediately after this. And I haven't seen much, I wouldn't say, of later Eddie Murphy's work. But for me, this felt like the Eddie Murphy of like trading places in 48 hours. He is so enthusiastic. There is so much energy there for a guy who's been making films now for what, 40 odd years? And he just imbues it with so much passion and energy and enthusiasm. I loved it. And I didn't think I would do. I didn't, it wouldn't be something I would have thought, oh, flicking through Netflix, I must watch that because I knew nothing about Rudy Ray Moore. I'm not a big, not a big knowledge of like black exploitation movies from the 70s or I'm not even necessarily thinking of myself as a huge Eddie Murphy fan, but it was a gem. Because my pithy review is Eddie Murphy's best performance since Shrek 2. Uh... <laughs> Donkey, of course. Do you know I completely forgotten about that until right now? It's true. Maybe, maybe this is the most fun he's had since Donkey. Yeah, I mean, and it's also good because he's getting a lot of Oscar talk for this. He's really in the conversation for best actor. And it's great because it isn't a dramatic performance. It's playing to his comedic strengths, but within a sort of a well-familiar biopic formula. And yeah, I mean, it's. I think it's just that clear passion. Everyone working on the film seems to have a real passion for telling the story. I'm sure they interacted with the real life people like throughout the making of it. Um, and I mean, yeah, Eddie Murphy is. He's he brings a lot to the character. But can I just say, uh, Wesley Snipes, who I don't think I've seen in a comedic role, maybe just absolutely nails it. I he's, did not even recognise well. him when he went in the first scene when he's they found him in a strip club. Mm. I didn't recognise him, and then I was like. Oh my goodness, that's Wesley Snipes. And he says, cut and action better than anybody I've <laughs> ever seen in a film, ever. Worth it just for that. He is awesome. Absolutely. It's one of the all-time great screen depictions of a really pretentious actor. Um, it's fantastic. Um, so, Vicky, this is uh, from the same screenwriters of Ed Wood, and their screenplay for that has influenced countless behind-the-scenes films of the years, most recently The Disaster Artist. I was just wondering, you know, how it sort of fits into that genre. Did you really feel like this was uh, a film set gone out of control? I didn't actually think that at all. So when I was watching The Disaster Artist, um, apart from it making me just incredibly uncomfortable as um, as like as the original film that makes me cringe so and much. And as anything with James Franco in should be oh. um... <laughs> But um, when I was watching The Disaster Artist compared to this, uh, this feels much more put together. Obviously, um, I feel like in the disaster artist uh it's sort of you lose faith because everyone else around it is sort of losing faith apart from like the actors however in this one they're all um there's such like i think someone mentioned before it's such a community they feel like even if it didn't go bad like i think eddie murphy gives a massive speech at the end when the movie dolomite got bad reviews from other people he's like we did this this is our film even if it like i'm in loads of debt which he isn't anymore um, you know, it's still something that we're all proud to make. And I think Eddie Murphy's character kept that up well during the filming sequences. As they were making the film, he was always like, I'll put 100% into this. And I feel like um, when you watch other films, like Disaster Artist, like it wasn't, it didn't have that until the very last minute when people started laughing at the like the room when it did its screening. You felt, oh God, like so unnerving and uncomfortable. But this, you were like 100%, it'd be okay. And can I just also say, I thought it was shot beautifully, actually. I thought it was a really, it's a really, really good looking film. So although it's, although I shouldn't say just a Netflix release, but obviously it's available to watch on your telly box on Netflix. It looks, that that whole kind of 70s LA, the light, it, it looks fantastic. The production values are brilliant on it. And um, yeah, and 
one final thing. Uh, not only can you watch this on Netflix, but on Amazon Prime, you can go and watch the original Dolomite film. Are any of you eager to go and seek that out after watching this? I mean, I'll be rushing to rewatch it. Yeah, for sure. If it's like, because I've only, I think I've only ever seen like pretty low quality versions of it. I've never seen it in the last ten years, so I'll be quite excited to see just a slight restoration online. Okay. For sure, yeah, I think at the very end they show the clips that you've already seen Eddie Murphy recreating in film. At the very end, you see the actual clips from Dolomite, and yeah, it looks like a hoot. I will strongly recommend anyone that wants to watch Dolomite maybe watch the trailer for the original Dolomite before watching this new Eddie Murphy film. It'll give you a lot of fun context to what's about to come, I think. Okay, you got to sort of mentally prepare yourself for what you're about to see. Um, but yeah, Dolomite is my name. It's now streaming on Netflix, so as soon as you finish listening to this, just whack it on. It's a certificate 15, so maybe don't get the whole family around the TV for this one. We now go from big city America to some of the most remote locations in Colombia with Alejandro Landa's acclaimed drama Monos. The film follows a group of eight teenagers, part of a guerrilla group named the Monos, who have been tasked with guarding a cow named Shakira and an American hostage, a doctor played by Julianne Nicholson. However, intergroup tensions stop this from going to plan and soon they've fled the jungle to evade being tracked down by the military. Uh, so, Vicky, um, this has been one of the most acclaimed films of the year. It won a prize at Sundance at the start of the year. It's just won Best Film at the London Film Festival. Does it live up to the hype? Um, so, when I watched it, I thought for the first... I came out thinking this is a beautifully shot film, um, but I was a bit traumatised by what happens in the film. Uh, but after like thinking about it, I think it's incredible. It's probably going to be my top ten of the year. It has this great um, soundtrack throughout. It has like these amazing sceneries and landscapes. But obviously, like the the eight guerrilla warriors that they've chosen to cast, I think just bring this film so together. Uh, you've got I think most of them are all unknown, apart from Moises Arias, who plays Bigfoot, um, who was previously seen in Hannah Montana. Um, but apart from that, like Colombia has had like 50 years of this violence, and what you see in this film, it isn't there. Well, it is, but what they're fighting for, you don't actually know. You don't know the political background. All it focuses on is the the children throughout it, and I think it really, it, it's quite striking, and it's a very, very good hyped-up film. Uh, Larkin, so inevitably this film has been compared to Lord of the Flies multiple times. Does it ever get out of the shadow of that influence? Um, no. I I actually hated Monos. I, <laughs> oh, I couldn't stand, here we go. I couldn't stand it whatsoever. I'm so sick of watching movies that are beautifully shot, they sound beautiful, but are just boring to tears. Um, I, yeah, I've, some... Some critic review uh, compared it to Apocalypse Now, and for some reason, that's just become like kind of the mantra of this film. Like everyone's comparing it to Apocalypse Now, and I, I think that's such a slap in the face to Apocalypse Now. I think the film's quite lazy. I think not not every film 
obviously has to subscribe to the typical like 3x structure or what we're used to seeing but i think if you're gonna change it up to something different then you better make sure it's interesting i just found there was nothing carrying me through this film um performances are fine but again with unless things are happening that's engaging i, I just felt the film was really self-righteous self-important and just kind of miserable Okay, I'll, I think I'll uh, play devil's advocate and say where I am on the film. I'll, I'll get out, present a mud, and briefly step into review a mud. Because I liked it whilst watching it. It really left an impression. And then I started thinking about it, and I felt that it was very style over substance, and I didn't feel it had anything deeper to say, despite all of this, these things happening on the periphery that should be political subtext. It just has nothing to really say. And, Ricky, you sort of touched on that. I was mm. just wondering if that has sort of affected how you've viewed it since watching it. So I feel like uh, the removal of the political background of Colombia um, as being a main plot point in this film has made you... I thought I was really engaged with all the, the kids. That, that sounds bad. But um, as in, like, I was more really focused on what they were going through, their emotions. And I thought if I didn't have that, obviously I would get lost. But I was really... In, no, I wouldn't say enjoying, but I was really like captivated by what was happening on screen, like this tussle for power within this small friendship group, but not really friends, and like just all the relationships that are developed between them. I thought that's what captivated me, but clearly did not. It would have been nice if they contextualised that into some kind of forward-moving narrative. Mm. <laughs> I mean, I feel like uh, the narrative, when it comes to the end of the film, when it completely just goes away... Uh, I think that was better somehow than if like something else had developed along with them being a part of this uh, monos group. That's fair, and I think I think I can understand people being engaged by the characters and stuff. But for me, it's very much like if you if you don't have a story, why are you making a film um, outside of like political context and stuff like that? I just didn't find it engaging or an interesting watch outside of. I mean, the the soundtrack's amazing. It's um. Oh, I can't quite remember her name. That's Mika Mek- Levi. Mika Levi, who did uh, the soundtrack for this, not the skin I live oh, in. Under, under the, the skin. skin. And, and a Jackie uh, as Jackie, well. Jackie, by far the best thing about Jackie was that score. Um, but again, just, there's just nothing here that would draw me back for a rewatch or would make me think fondly of it whatsoever. But, but do you think that any of the style helps compensate for the lack of I substance? I mean, yeah, if it, if it didn't look gorgeous, I would have been even more bored. So yeah. I appreciate that. <laughs> Oh, wow. Okay. Oh, wow. I don't know where to really go here. There's. I, I want more of an argument between the two of you. I'm trying to think what I could ask that could really bring that to the fore. Um, can you, considering this is a Colombian film, can you imagine any sort of circumstance where this could play well in Colombia and they could just grasp onto a political context? Or do you just think it's completely devoid of anything i have absolutely no idea i just know that i mean a film should be engaging like even if you have no knowledge of what a film the context of what a film is it's the film's job to get you engaged in that i I think the film assumes various things and again i think the film is feels very self-important and i i don't want to be a bit mean but i feel like maybe a lot of the critical reception in a similar way to Sicario, which I had a lot of problems with Sicario, people watch it and they feel like, oh, I'm watching a very important film. This is very good. It's very well shot. And it's very important. But there's so many problems with the film that I see. Um, I, I can't get over those. So what you're saying is you don't like films set in South America? No, I actually, I actually love rainforest movies. Rainforest, rainforest movies are actually one of my favorite subgenres. But uh, that's that how much that's coast. how much I did not like this. I haven't seen the Mosquito Coast. 
Please write your subgenre, you should do. Um, Sorcerer, though. Vicky, one final question. And one of the things I did like about the film is the fact that it does sort of subvert gender expectations. I mean, a lot of the uh, the characters, they are sort of gender non-conforming, but they all still have these sort of, like, masculine name nicknames, like Rambo. And I was just wondering if that was something that you conned on to our... Well, Rambo, I think, was, like, my favourite character throughout. I thought... They were like an incredible um, stance between the group of because there is I feel like there is a bit of gender conforming as well because you had Lady who's named Lady and she was like the woman of the group but then obviously like Rambo has this um, like this atmosphere as in like she is a warrior and I feel like at the end when they're all as a group and they become one like I don't think gender matters and I think that was a really good pull together of the group. Okay, right. Anyway, so that is Monos. Um, Got mixed reviews here. I'm in the middle, but leaning more towards Vicky. Um, it's a certificate 15, and it's now showing at the Arts Picture House. Bums on seats on Cambridge 105 Radio. So, just to remind you all, you're still listening to Bums on Seats, and uh, we're here for just under half an hour more. We've got a couple more reviews to come. Uh, in a bit, we're going to be talking about The King, uh, the new period drama starring the actor that Emma refers to as Timothée Chalamet. But first, uh, we've got the latest Ken Loach film, Sorry We Missed You. Hi, Rosie. Wake up. Dad will go mental if you miss school again. Now, if you don't move, then you're going to get a ticket. Oh, Rosie. You're feeling about that life. You don't work for us, you work with us. So you're out of contract, I get paid for the visits. Keep this happy. Scoot, scoot. Ah, yes! We track every parcel, don't we? To the front door and the back door. Even if you put one in the garden shed, they know where it lands. I never thought it would be this difficult. I just want things to go back to normal. You do more for me than you'll ever know. You've got the best thing in life here. You've got a family that care about you. How does your company get away with this? This is my family. Thanks for the great day. And I'm telling you now, nobody messes with my family. After the unexpected success of I, Daniel Blake, Ken Loach has returned to Newcastle for another story of how the system tramples over the working class. Here, Chris Hitchin stars as a delivery driver for an Amazon-style company who claim that in this role he can be his own boss. Only they penalise him for missing targets and make him work extensive hours with no breaks. His wife, played by Debbie Honeywood, is a care worker and has sacrificed having a car so her husband can get a van of his own to do the new job. But with mounting crises both at homes and at their jobs, the family struggles to stay afloat. Um, I know in advance that I might be the only person who likes this film of the people who have seen it. Um, and I just want to get into why. So, I mean, Ken Loach famously... Not the most subtle of filmmakers. Was it the heavy-handedness with the themes that really sort of distanced you from it, Bridget? Uh, well, I've been looking at some of the adjectives that have gone on the poster for it, which are riveting, powerful, absorbing, a searing human empathy. Um, but I find it grim and tedious, and they were just relentlessly explaining, and it was emotionally exhausting. And you could argue that this is deliberate on his part because the situation that the people are in is one that is very difficult to get out of even though they're kind and hard-working and they're doing their best to to escape and to do better and it's just not possible um but it does not make for a film that is um 
fun or rewarding or, or, or d- didn't feel at all any, any richness to the film. Uh, Sir Locke and Ken Loach has, in the past couple of weeks, spoken out against Marvel films and why they are not cinema. Is Sorry We Missed You cinema? Uh, no, well, by no means. <laughs> Same with Daniel Blake is not cinema either. Um, yeah, that was funny. I feel like after Martin Scorsese and Francis Ford Coppola had their digs at Marvel, Ken Loach felt more like Hans Moleman at the back of City Hall, <laughs> being like, me too. Um, no, this I, I I would not call this cinema. There's there's no subtext. I, I complain a lot about um, overt politics and film being a substitute for story, and I'm all about story. So if you if you have a film that doesn't have any story or very paper thin characters, then I'm going to be fairly disengaged. Um, I I mean, even technically, like, am I the only one that saw large chunks of the film out of focus? There are whole scenes in this movie that are out of focus, and I don't know how any film critic can look at that and be like, oh yeah, this is this is an 8 out of 10. Um, because I, that's just what the working class would film, shoot a film like, okay. <laughs> um, well, then I don't want to watch the movie. <laughs> um, I, I like how, uh, just before we started, uh, Bridget pointed to a note I made, manipulative tripe, and smiled and nodded, <laughs> which encouraged me greatly. Um, and I think, again, with, like, I, Daniel Blake, I... I can only assume uh, Ken Loach is doing stunt casting. Um, if he's not doing stunt casting, then there's no excuse for how terrible all these performances are. And like, bless her, the mum, the mum was sweet, but watching her try to remember her lines was like watching a match, a, a rat trying to get out of a maze. <laughs> so yeah, thumbs up. This should all go on the poster alongside all of those other adjectives. Um, do we feel like that the way that you know this, like many of Ken Loach's other films, has been receiving just glowing reviews across the board do we feel like that's a case of critics not being able to divorce personal politics with film quality because obviously i'm sure we all agree with the politics of the film but that doesn't necessarily make for rewarding viewing yeah and it's a very important subject and if you're not familiar with um precarious housing precarious employment um the difficulties you get with zero hours contracts this could be an eye-opener to you but i think a lot of people who don't know about this won't want to watch this film. It's not. Yeah, so I mean, Ken Loach saying Marvel isn't cinema, but that is what working class people, if they can afford a cinema ticket, will be going to watch instead. Well, I mean, apparently apparently, Paul Laverty is an experienced uh, screenwriter, but the only films of his and Ken Loach that I've seen have been I, Daniel Blake and this. Um, but it's, it felt, felt kind of like whenever you're on, the, on a screenwriting level, it's kind of like when your dad tries to walk in the living room and play video games with you and he's so terrible, you don't even know where to begin to coach him kind of thing. It's like, I, yeah... There's so many in this fundamental film, you would problems. Be, you would begin by explaining all the buttons on it and saying, <laughs> this button is marked up. If you press that, it goes up. If and you, you press the down the button, film you go down. By having yes. the same thing. Yeah, just every everyone's just constantly explaining how things work and what's happening. The opening scene is basically uh, the main character's boss telling him all these things that can go wrong, and you're like, okay, I'm just going to wait for all of these things to go wrong now. I quite liked that, actually. Um, the beginning of I, Daniel Blake was similar with a, a telephone call yeah. that you, you hear and you don't see. And that set things up quite nicely. So I thought, oh, this this might be a bit more of the same. Um, so you liked I, Daniel Blake? I didn't like it for the same reasons that I didn't like Sorry We Missed You. Okay. It was, uh, and, and it felt like the sort of film you make if you're going to take it round schools and pause at different moments and go, this is what we call a sanction. <laughs> Let's talk about whether sanctions are good or bad. Do you think he made the right decision here? Could he make any other decisions given his circumstances? OK, class, let's move on. Um, 
I, I love the idea of these two most recent Ken Loach films being reimagined as video games. Like, that is all I can think of now. Like, come on, kids, let's get around the Xbox and play a round of Sorry We Missed You. Well, it'd be infinitely more engaging. <laughs> Just got to deliver those parcels on time. Don't, don't want to get any points deducted. Oh, yeah, it's like Paperboy. The yeah. Game. <laughs> Sorry We Missed You is the adaptation of Paperboy. There was, there was a nice bit in, in Sorry We Missed You. I mean, we, we mentioned that we didn't think much of the characterization, but there's, there's a day when, when the girl and her dad spend a day together. And that's quite nice. That gives you a bit more hope. And that, that's the same sort of thing that you get with the odd scene with Daniel Blake and with the, the young woman in the food bank having that, that famous breakdown scene. But there was just so so much less of that. And that I mean, I, I liked this film, whereas you two didn't. And I thought, yeah, that I believed in the characters in the way that you two didn't. Um, Paul Laverty, the screenwriter, um, he famously like extensively researches and interviews people who've been in similar situations when he's writing his screenplay. Do we feel that that is very evident here? It feels like he hasn't really fleshed the characters out. He's mainly just tried to dramatise what he's been speaking to people about. Well, yeah, I wish I wish he spent more time trying to contextualise everything into a narrative rather than literally... It, it does feel very obvious. There are, like... In between, in between, like story scenes, you'll just have uh, the main character going door to door and and like delivering parcels. And every time the door opens, it's like, okay, what's going to happen now? And you can tell they're all like a series of anecdotes that parcel delivery guys have probably told him, um, told Paul Laverty. Um, and I, I mean, th- I did think the film was better than I Daniel Blake. I engaged with the character slightly more, and um, I did it did give me some context for like maybe in the future I'll I'll be nice, try to be nicer to pa- parcel delivery guys because if this is the true case, then that is pretty miserable. I thought it was because uh, in the future I'll just try to be nicer. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I won't go that far. Um, but it, it's nice, yeah, it's, it's nice to have that research and like get a bit of background on a, an area I didn't really know much about, but that's pretty much all the film's good for, in my opinion. Hmm. Maybe if there'd been more about the characters and what their aspirations were other than to just get through the day and to have a, a house over their heads, they, they didn't seem to have anything else in their lives. Yeah, and I find it interesting. I mean, this was always going to be released in November. The release date was announced ages ago. Um, but it's quite interesting that it's been released on the week that an election has been announced because now the criticism that it plays out like a Labour Party election manifesto is more apparent. I mean, is that how you two viewed it at all? Um, I think it's, there's certainly a political uh, kind of philosophy behind the film, but I, I wouldn't go so far as to speculate that it's like a, it's sort of like a propaganda tactic or anything like that. Okay. Well, uh, that is Sorry We Missed You, and it's now showing at two Cambridge cinemas, the Arts Picture House, and The Light. It is a certificate 15. Finally, today, we're going back to the 15th century for David Michaud's period drama, The King. A king has no friends. Only followers. And full. A new chapter of my life has begun. As prince, I spent my days drinking, clowning. Now I find myself the king. Choose your steps wisely, dear brother. They have their own kingdoms behind their eyes. I need men around me I can trust. You are my friend. I will come with you.
Now you will be watched over by an altogether different king. Timothy Chalamet stars as Hal, the black sheep in the English monarchy who is overlooked by his father when his younger brother is named as successor to the throne. But after they both pass away, he finds himself on the throne and crowned King Henry V and in direct conflict with the French. Emma, Netflix seemed to be throwing out period dramas at this point every year. Like last year it was Outlaw King with Chris Pine. This year it's The King. Does it feel like it needs to exist or does it feel like it was just commissioned by an algorithm that suggests people really want period drama. I felt it, it, it. Is it not kind of like Shakespeare's history plays for millennials with what Timothée? Um, I'm like, going. I'm going to call him Timothée because I think that's how you pronounce it. He is. It is French spelt after all. And um, Robert Pattinson. I don't know. I was really excited about this film because. Animal Kingdom, which was David Michaud's kind of breakthrough in 2010, which was this sort of, it's allegedly based on a real-life Australian crime family, and it's Joel Edgerton and Ben Mendelsohn and David Michaud, is one of my favourite films for the last 10 years. So I was super excited to see what he was going to do with this, and Joel Edgerton wrote the screenplay with him, and I was a little disappointed, I think, probably would be fair to say. Uh, yeah, I mean, I haven't seen Outlaw King. I know that Lorcan's yeah, I, I, a bit of that. I assume they're going for like just general kind of pre-Oscar season historical epics. Like not an actual awards player, but one to get you in that frame of mind yeah. ready for their actual awards player. On the off chance it gets that kind of buzz, yeah. But I think this is the first time we've seen Henry V back on the big screen or your TV screen, I guess, since Kenneth Browner. Am I right in thinking that? Have we had any? I don't think we've had an adaptation. So it's this sort of weird amalgamation of it's not obviously in Shakespearean language, but it is kind of in oldie world. I don't know whether or not... Sorry, sorry, sorry. Robert, Robert Pattinson's monologue to Timothy Chalamet isn't Shakespearean. <laughs> it's like Shakespeare meets Deadwood. Yeah. Where they're just like the casual modern day swearing as well. Yeah. I'm, I would just like to point out that we just had the pronunciation put on screen. It is Timothée Chalamet. Oh, so wow. He does sound, it is like the 1980s shampoo. That's all I've got to say. Timothée. Um, he's obviously a very... It, it is quite interesting casting because obviously... Timote is incredibly, as you might say if you'd watched Zoolander, he's incredibly hot right now, particularly, I believe, with the kids. But he makes for a very, I mean, he's a pretty slight King Henry well, V. This, this is the, I'm going to avoid all controversy and just call him Timmy. Um, <laughs> I think Timmy, Timmy stole everyone's hearts as like this lethargic, book smart twink, basically. And now he's immediately been thrust in the spotlight again as this battle-hardened, war-weary soldier, and there wasn't a second that I bought it. I did enjoy the film for the most part, but there wasn't a second I was looking at Timmy and us being like, it's that guy from Call Me By Your Name. I <laughs> think... nothing yeah. else. And well, he's, and he's soon going to be in Little... He's in Little Women. Um, Little Women and June, no, there's going to be... But he, um... I think they play pretty fast on who I say with historical accuracy because I am pretty sure that he, um... I'm pretty sure... Do, would they really have coronated him with no top on? I think when they well, coronate that's, that's him, the he's problem. kind of like, like half naked in the middle of the Abbey. It's, like, it's a catch twenty two because you got Timothy Chalamet, uh, Timothee Chalamet <laughs> um, and obviously everyone's going to want to see him topless because he's like you say he's very hot with like the younger audiences but then whenever you do that you just show how ill-defined his body is and yeah, how he's never set for I don't know if you remember the film before. Beautiful Boy from last year which was this sort of awards film with uh, Timothee as uh, sort of a, a young drug addict and you know he was on heroin and there'd be times that they'd see the arms and these arms would be completely fine despite the fact that we're told this drug abuse is you know destroying his body simply because hey the, the kids love 
Timote, they want to see him with perfect arms. But to move on from him, I suppose, you've got some interesting casting around the edges. Joel Edgerton has obviously maybe... Around the Edgerton. Is a man on the Edgerton, no. um, Joel Edgerton, he kind of plays a sort of northern-accented Falstaff. And I thought... For me, this is it was a film of two halves. I found the first half where you've got kind of King Henry IV dying and Thomas the brother dying, and you know, and, and then becoming King Henry V, that drags massively for me. But actually, when they get to kind of Agincourt and it is the most... I mean, I love the fact that it all comes down to Falstaff's knee or whatever, because he's like, oh, when my rheumatic knee feels things, I know it's going to rain. And, you know, that's how we want Agincourt, apparently, because Falstaff has rheumatism in his knee. But um, it kind of picked up for me, and I did greatly enjoy watching people in massive suits of armour, like, just punch each other in the mud bath. Well, the film does do well. Some of those battle sequences are pretty fun to watch. Uh, I mean, there's, from memory, I watched it this morning, there was one battle scene. Compare this with, like, Outlaw King, which was so go hard to go home. There's so many battle sequences and so much Well, effort. the difference is, he was an Outlaw King, this is just the king. So he only gets one war. Yeah. He only gets one big battle. Which pretty was, famous which battle, was fun. Though, to yeah. be fair. Pretty oh, famous I battle. Oh, I mean, you can, I mean, sure, that's a get out, though, isn't it? You can have lots of unknown battles look really cool. You can just rely on the one that everyone knows, I guess. <laughs> but I think I think Joe Legendon did kind of write himself the juiciest part, but I think he is actually the best part of the film. I think he legitimately pulls off his accent really well, and he just, he just carries himself really well. Uh, Sean Harris, you're just waiting for him to be... Every role he's in, you're just waiting for him to turn out to be the bad guy. And also, so. Ben Mendelsohn just has nothing to do. Again. Well, Such a waste of Ben Mendelsohn. I don't every know. Film, I don't every know. film is a waste of Ben Mendelsohn. Well, you Mendelsohn. see, but not Animal Kingdom. I mean, Animal Kingdom, yeah. he is a baddie in Animal Kingdom, but he is genuinely, it's one of the most chilling performances. And I think maybe it was from that that then he just gets cast as, like, identikit baddies in almost everything he does. Yeah. But I missed, I, I could have done with some more, some more of him. Anyway, we talked about accents, so let's we can't avoid the elephant in the room any longer. What on earth is Robert Pattinson doing? Well, it, it's bizarre because up until then, whenever um, Timothée talks to anyone in, in 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 the French side of things, they they um, they speak in French and they subtitle it. And then when he actually meets the Dauphin, Robert Pattinson decided to play this with a kind of lank blonde wig and the most ridiculous French accent ever. So he says, I'm going to talk English because it is stupid and ugly. And then there's some... That, I, just, I, I just have to clarify, that's an actual line of uh, dialogue in the film. This is not as... Possibly my accent was even better as well. It was impressive, wasn't it? It's, it's, I found it bizarre. It took me out of the... Well, I don't know. I think I was actually most engaged when uh, Robert Pattinson showed up. So you're waiting for him and then he shows up and he's got this ridiculous wig and he's speaking this ridiculous speaking in this ridiculous way. Um, I think Robert Pattinson's such a strange personage for me because he's like... I feel like he's constantly trying to get up there to the A-listers. But then whenever he does get like a high-profile gig, he just like... He's so flippant and flamboyant with it. It's so strange. And, um, and I think Robert Pattinson is a very interesting actor just because... He does. He's not afraid to be silly. Like he could. No. We, I mean, we've seen like Good Time. We know he can achieve great worlds. But when he's given this, he's just like, no, I'm going to be silly. And paradoxically, what should be the worst performance in the film was the only thing sustaining my interest, and I wanted more of him doing a nonsense accent. I felt he'd been watching a lot of Versailles beforehand to get ready. It kind of <laughs> felt like it's like as I watched quite a lot of Versailles, and that is not not was not necessarily a great TV show by any stretch of the imagination. But it felt a little bit like he was a um, bit actor in Versailles. I yeah no no for me it was a no for me. 
Okay. I think overall, I I, I would I, I, if you're a fan of like historical epics, I think it's one of the better ones in recent years. Oh uh, no, I'm sorry, I meant Robert Pattinson was a no for me. Oh not right, the film. Oh, oh, sorry, oh, I should okay. have made that clear. Robert Pattinson, I didn't. That it, it was funny, but it was jarring. Nah, I don't he, know, but, he livened things up, I think. I think it's depending on where you sit on the film. Because I mean, if you're liking it, then that's jarring. But if you're not liking it, you just want more of the silliness. Well, like I said, it, for me, the second half, I, I did, yeah, the whole Battle of Agincourt and the second half of it, I, I, I yeah, I, I, I got invested at that point. I enjoyed the second half a lot. And the bits, and, and the more Joel Edgerton it was, the better it was as well. So, I mean, this has been Netflix, they're really desperate for Oscars. Last year they had Roma and everything. This year their big players are Marriage Story and The Irishman. Do we feel that they're going to try and push this one in, or do you feel that this has no chance whatsoever? Surely not. No, I it's a three. It's kind of a three and a half star uh, I best. It's, I mean, I mean, let's not forget Bohemian Rhapsody. I think because <laughs> obviously let's not look at. <laughs> Um, let's not open that wound. Um, I think because obviously Netflix are notorious for not releasing any of their kind of data. Uh, they rarely release any of the data how much money these films are actually making. Um, I think the Oscar season is, to be a little cynical, typically dependent on how much money these movies are making as a kind of promotion for people to go see them some more. So if, I mean, if tons and tons of people watch it this weekend, I mean, Timothy Timothee Chalamet uh, certainly has that drawing power. Um, then maybe he'll just gain enough interest, enough people watch but, it, so that they'll recognise well, it. Well, my question is, does he? Because he hasn't really been in a big mainstream film. Like the biggest mainstream film he's appeared in is Interstellar, where he's like an absolutely nothing role, where he's playing the young Casey Affleck. But he's an influencer. I mean, honestly, what he wears on the red carpet is quite spectacular. He, no, I think he really is. He's got a very strong social media presence, which obviously is important amongst the kids and myself, which the, <laughs> which the Academy are always desperate to get as well. Yeah. Okay. And I think that, and you know, he is about he's about to be in Little Women, which is having a vast amount of um of. If, I feel I feel like it's bombarding me from everywhere I look. The new Greta Gerwig version of Little Women seems to be everywhere. I so. feel like next year is the year where he's going to take off as somebody that the average person on the street picks. Because now, right now, it's just you know cool art kids on Instagram. But now next year he's got uh, Denny Villeneuve's Dune. He's in the new Wes Anderson film. Next year he'll be in the films that average people on the street will see and that's when I think he'll really take off and I think as well regarding the king I, I do think there is something to be said for if it is trying to introduce you know what was considered you know some Shakespeare because it is kind of a rewrite of the history of those of that history cycle of plays from Shakespeare so it's trying to bring that to a younger audience and your audience who watch Netflix then that's no bad thing okay so if you're in the market for some millennial Shakespeare um the king is now streaming on Netflix it is a certificate 15 Anyway, that is all we have time for on this week's show. Thank you for listening today. Uh, we've repeated tomorrow, which is Sunday, November the 3rd at 2pm. And uh, a podcast of the show will be available in the next few days. We'll be back in two weeks' time when reviews of the film will include Le Mans 66, or Le Mans 66, if you're going to pronounce it in French. Um, that's the true story of Ford versus Ferrari with Matt Damon and Christian Bale. Uh, then there's also... Earthquake Bird, which is another Netflix Please Give Us an Award film starring Alicia Vikander, and uh, something a bit lighter, Last Christmas, a romantic comedy scripted by the one and only Emma Thompson. Anyway, uh, thanks for tuning in, and uh, to play us out, we had Dr. Sleep earlier, so now we're going to leave you with some Dr. Beat by Miami Sound Machine and Gloria Estefan. <laughs> <laughs>